0: Let's go ahead and get into chapter 13. Here's what it says. Verse 1, a wise son heeds his father's instruction. So there's a comma there, but it's certainly worthy of kind of pausing and reflecting. Most fathers and most sons will have periods of times in which horns lock. We've had, I think, the privilege and the mystery of seeing deer up on our property and the horns are out on some of these bucks. They're not big bucks and they're certainly not a daddy that we've seen head of the herd, but these are the young bucks. And they're stomping and they're locking horns and they're pushing. It's pretty magnificent since it's actually just right outside our kitchen window and it's like, you know, grab the popcorn, this is awesome, you know? And they're just warring on the gridiron of nature. Well, the other day, you know, Everest was driving up and he um, saw something larger than a deer and it was an elk. I'm kidding. The elks are visiting now. Was there any scrapping going on? He goes, no, but I'm so glad that I spotted him because I think he would have done damage to the car. I said he would have done damage to the car. So then I'm driving up Marina Heights road and I'm seeing a doe, but, they're just as big. They're, they're big, just the big reindeer snout and all of that. Isn't that new pulls? The, no, they're reindeer. Reindeer or elk, aren't they? Okay, I want to debate that with you. Never mind, I lost. Okay, good. I'm a good loser. We're good. But some of those Christmas movies look like they're elk. They're caribou. Okay, aren't those a type of elk? Okay, so basically you're saying on my game show I've just basically lost. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Edit this out, please. <laughs> Do you remember a show called The Gong Show? Oh, yeah. I think I just reinvented it. I got to put my cup down. It's getting So here's where I was going with that. That as, as Solomon is giving this word of wisdom to us, he is both able to see dysfunction in his family, and there is also in this as well a credit, even though there isn't much given to David in terms of his parenting or his fathering, and that would be true. He had a lot of kids, and a lot of kids that would probably be contrary to the intent of God, when he began his life of marriage, he just fell like the other kings in those days into desiring a wife after a wife after a wife. It caused some problems in his ability to lead his young, and he did have sons. And we can go back and make an account of what that meant, ultimately, in the heartache. The heartache was in the fact that There were some foolish sons that under his house were in contention with their dad. And it's important to understand that as youth grow up, there will be times in which the testing of their maturity can be pitted against the wisdom of their fathers. Very often, Some would say, well, the error of my father is the excuse for my behavior. Well, that's ridiculous because the Lord would say equally that every person is accountable to him ultimately in their behavior. A son can't blame his father and a father can't blame the son. Everybody is to take an accountability that ultimately is the honor to the Lord God himself. So this opens up, and it's important because, um, as we've talked about the Proverbs uniquely, it is a book that hinges, swings successfully for entry and exits of life based on a moral predicate, that there is a right and wrong, there is evil and there is good, righteousness, unrighteousness. Morality isn't simply defined by a carnal imposition or instinct, it actually is based on the attributes of God in his love and in his perfect disposition of being right all the time and good all the time. And so that distinction you remember was divided in the Garden of Eden. Highly intelligent first parents of the world, highly spiritual perfect in form, nothing that they lacked, and yet something in the provocation of their mind turned them into fools and ultimately, as you remember, plunged the world into a consequence related to sin. So the, the important part of this passage, as it's saying, is that it's going to be a wise son. How do you stop the madness? It's a wise son that does what? Heeds his father's instructions. my father's a nutcase. Well, you allow the Lord, sons, to lead you in a manner that exemplifies honoring the father. And you'll see that the nutcase that your father perhaps was will become a case of exceptional spiritual maturity because you endured. It's really important to know that very often the son that's heeding, even a father that is difficult, is actually ministering to that man in a way that the Lord can touch his heart. There have been fathers who have been changed by the disposition of their sons through honoring him. And so that just comes out in my mind. I also have reflections very quickly of times when I did not honor my father. Didn't go well for me. <laughs> He was much faster than I counted on and he could chase me down. I already told you that he sent the MPs after me one time and they could chase me down. It didn't go well when I didn't honor my father. But there were times in which the honor that I would give because of the Lord in my life took an exceptional pause with regard to the honor that was due my father. When the Lord called me, from teaching and into ministry that was a hard one and i had to say to my dad i can't teach anymore the lord has called me into ministry and i must go and it was quiet for several days it was a very difficult time Ultimately, though, the disposition that I exercised in arguing for obedience to God and not necessarily heeding what he had asked me to do, which was to remain on contract, in teaching, moving into my ninth and tenth year, um, a letter that I'd prepared a month in advance before our conversation was what put him ultimately to a settling. Because he knew contracts. He knew what it was like. To be able to facilitate, if you would, military on mission. Oh, this is your new position. This is your dispatch papers. This is where you're being sent to. And so for me, it was basically my resignation to the school district saying that I would be leaving. And I had it dated. And he looked at the letter and he said, This is July 10th. Uh huh. It's August 16th right now. I know. It's August 16th, my resignation has been accepted. And so you're looking back on the past, Ed. We have to look on the future. So what proved it to him though, in this, which I'm taking a long time for, was the evidence of what I did, sticking it out, going to Mexico, and guess what he did? He followed me to Mexico with mom. He saw what it was I was doing he was able to say, well done, good man, keep up the good work. And by the way, how's Christy? How's she doing? He had to wait three years later to see that one work out. But in faithfulness, God was honored in both heeding my father's wisdom, not being a fool, even though at times I had been foolish. I have other incidences. Let's advance, though, because it's just important that right now morals are anchored in decisions that are right, and it is right for God's sake that a person in the position of a headship of a family receive honor, due him, even if there are things problematic with him. We all have problems. A scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And so that defines the person that ultimately just is not only not heeding, but is completely thwarting rebuke. That person's a scoffer. Proverbs 22.10 says that the scoffer is to be cast out, removed, that contentions and fights would cease And so that's one of the things that is important that the scoffer be removed. Well, how long till they no longer scoff? In my opinion, it gives latitude, but as they scoff, they create a contentious and difficult environment that is no longer harmonious to the soul, to the spiritual life. And that is one of the things that happens both administratively and domestically. But when do they come back? When they come back on God's terms. When they meet God's terms, the position that they had is rightfully theirs to be proven again. Many times I've seen the displacement of one because in scoffing they needed to be removed and they got right with the Lord and things changed because grace had its opportunity in them. So that's what I wanted to say in verse one. In verse two, it moves on to say this, a man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth, but the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. And so the comparative here is just a little bit difficult because it seems fairly dramatic, but the emphasis really is that in how our language presents us as believers, and whatever it is we're doing, it seems to suggest that the pay will be the pleasantry of a appetite that the Lord both blesses you with and that you can say, wow, that's marvelous. I like this because one of the things that we do, a man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth, is that as you've observed on the stage tonight, many of these are our young college kids. They're young adults. I vacillate between the two qualifiers. They're wonderful young people. And what our heart is, is to feed them well, spiritually first. But as that became something that they stepped into and rolled up their sleeves for, it became evident that we shall feed them. And so, on Thursdays, when we have our big class day, they get pancakes. I think they had gravy and biscuits and gravy the week before. Before that, it was, I think Katie did a egg casserole, marvelous. We feed them because their desire is to be fed by the fruit of their mouth. They made a commitment to become a part of a good work, of understanding God better through the scriptures and having their life governed, how much more would God, if I may say, do the same for any of us? Because really we all are students right now as we're moving through this. That's probably the emphatic point in verse two. It moves into the close of it though, but the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. Their appetite is for anything contrary to God and violence certainly is not of the Lord. The disposition of peace and of love, mercy, charity, all of these things, those are dispositional to God's attributes. Violence is not. The Lord says, give me room for judgment. Don't take it upon yourself. You give me room. My wrath will be a perfect wrath. Yours is simply anger robed in an excuse. And by the way, this has nothing to do with nations having a sovereign right to go to war. God did build that in. Not all nations use it to the extent of a righteous war. But I do want to make sure you know that the conflicts we've been involved in, as far as history would record, have been for the intention of God and country and the citizenry. And... um, Israel right now is in a time in which, you know, the age is being summed up, or I should be there. We should be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. But right now, the church has this need to say, I want to speak, and I want the fruit of my mouth to glorify God, and my actions to follow what it is I say, what I sing, what I share, and I want to be able to pray for those who on the other extreme, contrary to who I am, are impressed because they've examined their life and they're tired of what they're feeding on. They're nauseous. Violence is both nauseating and it's excruciating even to the person that seems to be enjoying it. It has no satisfaction. I did not read a full review, but there is a man who is the son of a, an Hamas leader. And he discovered the Lord. He became a Christian. So I'm fascinated to go back and read that article. But he, in the wisdom that God has given to him, the wisdom that God has given to him, he is able to say, I know what God is wanting to do. And violence is not what God is desiring to have and certainly not by the barbaric cruelty of my people group, my father and his father before him. So his position and stance is as a believer. Now some may say, well, can you trust him? That's not my job. He seems to be saying things with the fruit of his mouth in which he is saying, I'm not one of them. I at one time was raised to be a man of violence. I am not that man, and I'm speaking out against it. I'm speaking for Israel. Pretty amazing. In verse 3, he who guards his mouth preserves his life. And that would be true. The scriptures say that in the abundance of many words is sin. It's just waiting to start a fire that's unnecessary. We've seen what fires do. James equates the tongue as that which is like a fire that's burning destructively, consuming everything in its path. And so you and I are inconvenienced significantly just going into the valley because everything is keyed on can they repair the roads, can they secure the land area that very likely will be able to move into a a landslide when the rain's hit. Can they get things back to normal? It's going to take a lot of time. And very often, by a match that the tongue lit and the fire that ensued and the devastation that has happened, it takes time for that green to come up again because it's destructive. James really is an in-your-face book. And my thoughts are is that James, not John and James, but the half-brother of the Lord, it's interesting. He's almost, to me, telling on himself he wasn't a believer at the time in which you'd think the greatest influence ever to be at a home, Jesus himself, could have radically just set him on fire, it didn't. Tells you the danger of both the carnal mind and, and the foolish man. But it seems to be that as he talks and really is in your face on many of the subjects with regard to faith, that does have a working out and an industry in it, there's a temperament that works against it. There's a bias that he, I believe, is saying, this was in me. This came out of me. I saw it destroy a lot of potential, a lot of possibilities. And now I'm in this much wiser position, being an older man, and obviously now knowing that, in fact, I lived under the household of my Heavenly Father through my Lord and my half-brother. He was. And he's altogether just a different person. But he who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. And so that's kind of where we're at now. Uh, We're the Me Published generation Everybody's publishing something about themselves. Everybody wants to be an influencer. But there's no influence that a man or a woman, child, anybody, even a corporation, can be greater than the influence that God has shown to us through Jesus, the Spirit of God, within each one of us. No greater influence can come than what God can give And so it's one of those things that we ought not strive for. Popularity has actually been that which has persecuted the person who wanted fame. They got it, and guess what they no longer have? They no longer have privacy. Sometimes you think, wouldn't it be cool to be famous? I think if you got famous, you'd go, what was I thinking? Cameras are always on me. I can't even walk around in a bathrobe. Or somebody's going to judge me if I'm in swim trunks. That's kind of where I'm at. This, this is my swimming attire. If we were going to the lake tonight, waiting for the sunrise tomorrow, this would be my swimming attire. If I chose to swim, this is what I'd be in. There's nothing to show off, folks. If anything, it's just cover up. Don't let them see. Stay white. Because I have to. I burn. And then if I burn, then I go to a professional and they burn me some more. And I don't like that. And so verse four, the soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. So there's something to say about the diligence of the worker, and it happens in different areas of our life. I'm not a mason and I'm not a carpenter. I know a little bit about it, but I'm not somebody you would want to hire for it because I wouldn't be able to please you. I don't even think I'd be able to please myself. I'm good, though, with a bucket and sand and little plastic utensils (laughs) as long as I'm close to the surf where it can all be erased in my failure of making something out of sand. But when you watch guys of industry that are applying the God-given talent that they have, it's a commendation right now contrary to the lazy person. And I believe as well, it is a marker, it's a spiritual marker that will be indelibly remembered. There are people that are attentive to the Spirit of God in you based on what it is you do, but how you do it. It's not just what it is you do, it's how you do it. And so there's something to say for wherever you're at, do it well. Do it for as long as the Lord would have you do it. Change only when God has made that change essential for the next positional step. Many times there have been questions like, how did you get where you're at now, rich? Because I followed certain courses that I did not necessarily know would lead me to this, but I took every step that God says is essential and leaving behind one to pursue the other at risk of perhaps what some would say the comfort of a paycheck, the certainty of what it is I was going to do and how long would I be there in the doing of it. So my entire course of life has really been letting go, picking up, letting go, picking up, letting go, picking up. I still have boxes that says I've picked up, but now I don't know what to do with that which I at one time could let go of. I have stuff that have followed me for like 30 years. Hopefully, the theft that took place wasn't God saying, I can get some of that stuff out of your way. You know, and then they cut my lock and haul off my trailer. Who knows? Maybe that was good for me. But the lazy man's desires and has nothing but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. And that soul is a soul that also hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Verse 5, a righteous man hates lying, but a wicked man is loathsome and comes to shame. And so this is a clear indicator of what we would say the character of a Christian ought to be. And that is, we hate lying. And that's really where we're at right now, society that says, my truth is my truth. I remember that phrase clearly from a professor in elementary education. I remembered when it began to be used, and I used it a couple times. Well, what's true for me is not necessarily true for you. I remember that phrase, and I remember he always got my name wrong when he called roll. I won't go into that. But he not only got my name wrong, he got truth wrong. What is true for one may not be true for another. Truth is to not be a variable, and it is to be proven and text compared to what God has said in his word, period. That's where the moral equivalency of truth is grounded. What is God's word concerning that subject, concerning that decision, concerning that adjudication, what is the way that God wants it done when He established governance over a people to be for their safety, to be for accommodating them in needs? It wasn't to be oppressing them, it was to be accommodating civility, protection, provision, opportunity. Some nations have done well for a season. Some have done really well for a longer season, but you know what? The United States, actually, when you look globally around, we've been in this area of, in my opinion, divine blessings and outpourings, less than nations that have preceded us. Two hundred and what forty-seven years, something like that. Founded as a government, a republic, operates democratically. And I believe the key has been because this country was authored by men and women of faith who desired to be free to worship God. Not anything, not any other entity, not even a beautiful place like America, but to be able to establish churches and to worship God without the influence of a state institution that foisted secularism, humanitarianism, all the junk. And so the Lord also took notice of our heart for Israel. The Lord took notice of us for our spiritual evangelism. And I believe that's where we can say the favor of God has been upon us, but it doesn't have to be indefinite. If the people of God or a nation separate from the people of God say, we're not going in that way. We're not going to honor God. In fact, we don't want Bibles in our classrooms, in our libraries. We want other kinds of intriguing books. We are into kind of novels. We're into little peripherals of perversion. It's okay. It's good to be on the other side of somebody else's worldviews and thoughts. But it's not good. It's corrupting. And so, at any rate, great verse there, we don't appreciate being lied to, and it is something that actually is to be objected to. Our leaders in the state levels should be held accountable to not lie, to speak truth, and to not be foul-mouthed, which proves something that we already went through. They're not filled with the Spirit if they're filled with garbage, That they're releasing through their mouth and so righteousness guards him whose way is blameless but wickedness overthrows the sinner and that's a comparative again who is the Lord of righteousness it's Jesus he guards us whose way is blameless how can we be blameless it's to be blameless By being in a relationship in which we are forgiven radically. In the forgiveness that God offers to us, the mercy that's been granted, what does it do? It changes our disposition. It doesn't mean that we're perfect people. It means we will make mistakes. But we limit how often we desire to make mistakes. It's kind of like stage production or movies. Take one, or a recording session. Take two. Take three. I've done 23 takes on one song that I wrote. How could that possibly be? It's because it wasn't right, but it was acknowledged very quickly. And so take two happened. But take two wasn't as perfect as the engineer thought it should be. So it moved to take three. But all of the takes were teaching me something about perfection, if you would, about a righteous standard. In order to make the best presentation, I had to work on the mistake. Well, why did you make a mistake all the time? I have no idea. Bad hearing, tired vocals, whatever. Maybe I was playing the guitar while singing, and I messed up on the guitar, which couldn't be taken away from the vocal track. What I'm saying is the takes in our life are the opportunities in which we come to terms with our errors, with our disposition, our mistakes, the things that are contrary to God's will. And in that moment, we say, Lord, forgive me. That's what actually tests your spirituality. When you've erred, and what happens is you say, I've erred, I've sinned, forgive me. It tells you that your heartbeat is actually closer to the Lord than what you may even feel or believe. Because sometimes we say, too many check marks, too many takes. It's impossible to believe that I am following in the ways of the Lord with that many takes. Well, the Lord would say, because you're acknowledging that, you're closer to me than you thought possible. And I'm perfecting you with each confession and each willing step you take towards me. Because sometimes the takes aren't just boom, boom, boom. It's kind of like boom, boom, take five. Okay, now take five. You mean it's the fifth take? No, take a break. Just take a break breathe walk away get your mind cleared sip some tea just take a break so that you're not broken in the process until this is mastered and until in the master everybody's able to say perfect for distribution see the lord's just making us perfect for distribution he allows in that the process to perfect us the failures I don't think there's anybody here that hasn't failed at something at some time. It hurts. It's not fun. It definitely takes a hit on our pride, which isn't a bad thing. The bad thing is when we try to say, well, how dare them? Well, God's the one that did dare them. Because for every story that has seemingly the tragic ending, you have the exaltation of what God did in the interim period of maturing. Joseph's a classic example. He didn't get a chance to hang with dad as he wanted to, but ultimately his perseverance in cleaving to the Lord led him to be the chief of staff over all of Egypt. Daniel wasn't where he wanted to be, nor were his brothers, but it's where God had positioned them to be. And as a result of not taking it personal, but rather embracing it as spiritual, they were used mightily to literally invest truth into Nebuchadnezzar, it's very likely that we will see him in heaven. He has a repentant journaling in the book of Daniel. He didn't get it as quick as he should have, but he inevitably did. We don't have any evidence that his household that followed him, sons of wickedness, did, but he did, took him through some seasons of humiliation. Somehow the Lord says, I'm going to be gracious to you, Nebi." And I'm going to do a work in you, but it's going to cost you. You're going to lose seven years of productivity. The world that I gave you, literally at your hands, I'll keep it running. But you're going to say something about me when this is through. And he did. And so verse 7, there is one who makes himself rich yet has nothing and one who makes himself poor. It has great riches. And this is somebody who just lives in the balance of both contentment. Riches don't necessarily impress him, but he knows how to use his riches. He invests them. Where your treasure is, there your heart shall be. It's a wonderful principle, but you'll always know how your heart follows by the investment that you've made into that which it desires. Everybody, no matter where you're at, whether it's vocational, whether it's the rearing of children, whether it's your marriage institutions that you're in position to influence, it's always the investment that you make. Well, it hasn't worked so far. How do you know what God's working on in what you're tabulating in error? Has anybody made errors in your tabulation? The bank made an error in their tabulation. Never had that happen before, but they did. Several thousand dollars in this account. And we didn't catch it. They caught it. It really hurt. That error hurt. Because in the error, oh, that's awesome. Praise the Lord. Really? That much came in? A million dollars. Joking. Never a million. This phrase is actually very pertinent to us but it was enough to where in order to write their error things had to change in the calculation and so john when did we have to get ready for this one i don't know it's coming though it's coming you mean it's like it's going to be vacuumed out vacuumed out okay and it wasn't anybody's fault but man it took a breath And so that analogy simply says there are, at times, calculations that we make that were not intentional, not necessarily emotional, but they were calculations that can be said, an error happened. And as a result, there's an adjustment that God will make to the error. Why? So that your account can be replenished inevitably. It stings for a season, but inevitably, it is to enrich you. If in contentment, you're able to say, okay, there was an error. All right, breathe deeply. And now let's get this right. One who makes himself rich yet has nothing and one who makes himself poor yet has great riches. By the way, there is a question mark that can hang on that first portion. Makes himself rich and has nothing. His disposition may indeed be Ah, come see, come saw. Que sera, sera. In other words, it's not necessarily faulting him. He just makes nothing of it, has nothing for it. He could be somebody that it comes in and goes out as fast as it came in. On the other hand, the negative would be is that that's all he's worked for, that all is all he cares for, and as a result, as a result he has nothing. Whereas the poor man, content with his status and the lack of really influencing anything in his life, that requires capital, he ultimately is the one who is rich in the end, wealthy. Could be either or. You get tested in that. The ransom of a man's life is his riches. So this is interesting. Ransom means actually that which is paid for something or someone. In other words, you don't get that something or someone. Back without a payment due. In this is an interjection the Lord paid a ransom for us. It cost Him to get us back from the clutches of the enemy. There is a picture here that is true with regard to this. The ransom of a man's life is his riches. But guess what this also says to us? We couldn't pay for it for ourselves or for anyone. The interjection is that the Lord Himself was the only way to do that, the only person that could do that, the only God that would care enough to give himself for us to do it. So ransom is an important word here, and it indicates the power of someone over you or in spite of you takes possession of you because of their status. The Lord has desired to take possession of us because of his status as sovereign over us. We're not to say at all that he doesn't care, that we're not worth his time, we're worth his life. He gave his life for us. It's actually a very beautiful statement. And one who makes himself poor yet has great riches, the ransom of a man's life has, is his riches, but the poor man does not hear rebuke. Now that's an interesting phrase. But I'll close here. This means that one can be at a position in which they simply have said, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm at. People can yell at me for where it is I am, what it is they don't see in me, but rather than make a point of it, be contentious with them, I'm simply going to resign. The rebuke means the yelling at or Excessive correction of someone. This is what I think it's being applied here. But the poor does not hear rebuke. They're at that point where criticism just doesn't matter. But love does. Love matters. Selflessness matters. It changes a disposition. We've seen people that don't care what it is you say but we've also seen people that have changed because of how much you care. Guy was running around the corner, running up here. I was saying goodbye to a couple of guitar students and he had this canteen. Hey, excuse me, can I get my canteen filled up? And as the car was beginning to pull out, the mother of these two students looked at me and smiled because she knew the transaction that was going to take place as I was going to fill this canteen. So come on in here. So we went over there. The water jug was empty. Okay. We got another one here. Let's try this one. Oh man, it's just barely. Let's see if we can get as much into your can as we've in there. And it was perfect because he goes, I think it's filling. I do too. I don't think there's anything in there. Something's in there. Yep. The Lord's making provision for you. There's something in there. And we got, he goes, wait a minute, it's going to overflow. I said, maybe you need that in your life. I'm willing to let that happen. But he corked it, and I said, Is there anything else I can do for you? Does a cup of coffee interest you? Well, could I get two? Yep, for a friend? Of course. Can I give you two cups to insulate it? No, 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 that's wasting. Oh, that's very thoughtful of you. Very thoughtful of you. So made two cups of coffee. And they said, Before you go, I want to pray with you because the Lord's made provision for you. And so you got a place to camp out? Yep, I do. I said, when's the last time you were in church? I think right now. I said, well, (laughs) come back on Friday. We do a great men's breakfast, and we would love to meet you. So you don't have to be distant from here. You came in to receive. It's been granted. I invite you back for a men's breakfast. Come on in and see what the Lord will do for you. And maybe your tenting days will be limited to better things for you. Okay." So we prayed, and I released him, as I'm going to do for you right now. So Proverbs, again, has with it technical, spiritual, and logical reasoning. Some of it doesn't necessarily hit the spot where you think it should, but it does apply itself as you move your way through the week, as you understand that principles that we're hearing will be applied in the things that you will be doing. And that's way we take advantage of this. 13, not as far as I wanted to go, but I think sufficient for where, where we needed to be.